Welcome to the Grace City Eugene podcast. We exist to help every person in our sphere of influence encounter Christ, experience biblical community, and extend God's kingdom. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to hello at gracecityeugene.com. Here's the podcast. Morning, everybody. There it is. Hey, Now that we all are awake, as Matt said, my name's Chris. I'm the pastor here. I also lead worship from time to time. And uh, I'm glad to be with you all here this morning. <clears throat> we are in a substantial chunk of time looking at the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been with us in the previous weeks, you know that. Uh, we started off doing eight or nine weeks in a series called Make Room, where we talked about um, we looked at the first couple chapters of Mark through the lens of making room. What are we making room for? What does John the Baptist come to make room for? What is Jesus making room for? What are we called to make room for in our lives as Jesus is coming? And then over the last couple weeks, we're looking at this thematic look through the next chunk under the lens of pressure. Uh, we know that the pressure is rising, it's intensifying, the crowds are growing, there's tension and conflict between the government and the religious authorities and Jesus, and the, the pressure is mounting to the point where, as we read last week, Jesus had to step off of shore into a boat just to be able to step back and see the crowd that he was preaching to and, and have space and perspective to deliver them this good news. And the pressure is rising, and it has not changed this week. As we get into the scripture, the intensity is not subsiding in Mark's gospel. And we're getting some stuff today that requires some study. Um, if you've been reading with us in our reading plan, you probably came across this chunk, and you were either like, yeah, I'll just pass that and keep going, or, you, or it raised a lot of questions for you. And, and scripture should do that. And unfortunately, we're almost trained from Sunday school on that when we see challenging verses, we just kind of move on and go to the stuff we understand, or we don't deal with the difficult things, the things that maybe there's misunderstanding about that can lead to um, us not actually becoming closer to Jesus, but becoming skeptical and cynical of what he is doing. And if taken wrong, the scripture that we're covering today can lead to that. And so we're going to tackle this, we're going to go through it. I'm going to share with you what I've learned. I hope to bring some light to some things for you. And I believe there's one particular thing that God really wants to prophetically speak into our community in this time through this scripture. So if you would join me, either on the screen, on your app, or in your Bible, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20 today. We're going to go through the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 20. So let's read together. It says, then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Interesting. That should cause you to ask a question. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without, without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. 
Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never, say never, will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that he had an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? He asked rhetorically. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. I thank you for the things that are encouraging and we like to read. And right off the bat, God, we can just see what you're saying and we receive that. And it it helps us to apply uh, your word, God. And we also thank you for these things that may be nuanced or may require a little more understanding. God, would you bring light to to this scripture for us here this morning, God? Would it help us to understand more deeply who you are, why you sent Jesus, what you sent him for, and what that calls us into? God, would your Holy Spirit be preparing our hearts to receive your word, and I pray that my words would be of you and not of myself. Father, would you breathe life into this time and into your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. So if you're anything like me, uh, you read through that and you're like, hmm, interesting. If you're the highlighter type or the underlining type, you're probably like, ooh, I'm going to underline that and come back back, back to that later. Or maybe... You just read over it and you're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means. And you just keep going. There's plenty of other scripture that you want to read, right? Like we tend to deal with things in those ways. And so the goal today as we tackle this scripture is twofold. It's twofold. First of all, there's some things that we need to better understand in here. So we're going to go through, we're going to break this down, see what it actually meant to the people that were receiving it, break down maybe even some of the original language and what it meant, because this has been translated a few times, and as I've shared with you before when we're preaching, there's not always a good translation for Hebrew or Greek into what we would understand, and oftentimes you have to take multiple translations and the way that it's phrased in different translations, and you put that all together, and you make this little translation sandwich, right? And you're like, what does that actually mean? mean in our in our terms is it NIV is it ESV is it NASB which one you're like yes it's more a combination of all those things like we it's a broader definition than what we have words for and so we're going to dive into this that's the first goal of today the second I believe is there's not just something we need to understand but there's something we need to apply out of this and that's where we're going to land at the end. So if you're a note taker, this would be a good time to to get that out and take some notes because there is a lot going on here in these 15, 16 verses uh, that we need to unpack. First, we see that Jesus's popularity and the desire to get around him and see the things that he's doing has not like subsided, right? It starts off and it says, and again, the crowds gathered. People were coming from all over the region to witness his miracles, the, the, the acts that he was doing. There was still a strong desire, and the crowds continued to grow. But we do see here, right off the bat, is there's, there's a new twist. This is the first time we see this in Mark's gospel, is Jesus' family is mentioned, right? We, we notice that right off the bat, like it mentions his family. And I would ask you, does it mention his family in a fond way? If you really read it, it, it's not such a fond mentioning of his family. 
uh, when his family heard about this, that once again Jesus was gathering this crowd and people were coming to hear his teaching and they knew of all these tensions and conflicts he was getting in with the Pharisees and the religious authorities and the negative attention that he was getting on a local level, they came and they wanted to just get a hold of him. They wanted to get him, take him back home, be like, hey, just hush, you're causing too much trouble. You're causing too much trouble. The verb that's used here in the original language is actually the same verb the Bible uses for to arrest. So his family came to functionally arrest him so that he would cease what he was doing. They could silence him, take him back to their place in Nazareth, and maybe have a little rehab time. They thought he had gone crazy. It says they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus' family... <laughs> His mother included, the one that the angels came to and told who she was going to birth, thinks that he's out of his mind the way he's acting. It's, it's just, it's fascinating to me. And so they come and they actually get in the way of or try to hinder his ministry, try to get in the way of what he's doing. And then we see this abrupt, immediate shift in verse 22 to these teachers of the law, it says, coming from Jerusalem. Now, we know that Jesus has been mixing it up with the local religious authorities, right? I believe there were five instances throughout uh, chapter 2 and right in the first uh, couple verses of chapter 3 that Jesus was encountering these guys. They were questioning him, and he'd question them back, and it was like this verbal judo going on, and he was you know, helping them to understand how he is the fulfillment of Scripture, and there's all this stuff going on. So we know that he had had a lot of run-ins with the local authorities up to this point. But now we learn that religious authorities have come from Jerusalem, from the religious epicenter, from the, the religious power structure of Israel. They had sent these authorities to look into Jesus. They'd heard about these claims he was making. They knew that at the local level, he wasn't like heeding the advice or the leading of the local religious leaders. And they sent these folks in to find out what was off about him and finally hush him up. They wanted to mute him. They wanted to end his ministry because they believed he was blaspheming. These authorities were also called scribes, and they have come to look into this Jesus guy and see what he's all about. This would be like for us if Washington, D.C. sent like the FBI in to check things out, right? It's like the upper level center of power, religious government for them. They sent them to like, hey, we, uh, we can't handle this at the local level. We need some outside help. And they sent these scribes in to look into him. And the very first thing that these scribes do that we read about is they make a declaration that Jesus is possessed by the prince of darkness. Like that's, a, that's a pretty big statement to make. You're actually siding with working for Satan, the prince of darkness. Everything you're doing is out of the power of the evil one, is what they're saying. Yes, Alan, evil, exactly. See who says the kids don't pick up on this stuff. <clears throat> Hopefully he continues to listen. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so they, they accuse him of this. And how does Jesus respond? He responds by speaking in parables or by using real world examples to illustrate his points and to draw out the absurdity of their accusation and open people up to the truth. So he's like, are, are you kidding me? Now you say I'm working for Satan? Like, okay, let me illustrate this for you and show you how ridiculous that accusation is. And let me use some illustrations that maybe you can understand. 
you say I'm working for Satan. But you see, he, he's very clear that he's been driving out the dark and the demonic and the possession of Satan, of the evil one in these people's lives. He's been working against the demonic and dark forces up to this point, right? So he's like, hold up, you're saying this doesn't add up. I'm delivering them from, from possession. How can Satan drive out Satan, he says. This accusation makes no sense. And we know that exorcism brings healing, not harm, which is functionally what he was doing. He was delivering these people from demonic possession, and that brings healing, not harm. So Jesus questions their logic with this kingdom imagery. He said, a kingdom that's divided against itself, split into two factions, battling within itself, it can't stand. That kind of disunity, that kind of civil war will lead to its eventual crumbling. Which What he's saying is, if I am working on behalf of the very one that I'm actually casting out and here to obliterate, we, there's this civil war happening. There's factions happening. Like, that just doesn't make sense. Why would Satan send one of his operatives to work against him and drive like, him, his forces out of the very people he's possessing? Like, it just, he, he's trying to help them understand, like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It would cause the kingdom to fail. Another way to look at it, he says, if a house or a family unit or a tribe is against itself, if it has infighting and disunity, it cannot last. If there's division in a family, in a house, it, it can't last. He's saying if Satan is working against himself, his kingdom is divided, it cannot stand, and it is contributing to its own demise. So functionally, he's telling them, your accusation that I'm working for him and oppressing him in my work, that logic simply doesn't stand. That's what he's using parables and, and arguing about or declaring here. So if Jesus doesn't work under Satan's power, there's another explanation that's at hand. There's a stronger one that has bound the strong man and is pillaging his house, as we see in the further imagery. What is happening is not the result of a civil war or factions infighting. Uh, within Satan's ranks, but it's actually an onslaught that's coming from the outside to obliterate and end the powers of darkness forever. You see, this is about the crumbling of the kingdom of darkness. It's just not from within. It's this outside force in Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming, that is doing this. And then he continues in this parable, and he gives us a little allegory. Now, allegory is a story or a poem or a picture that can be interpreted to reveal a hidden meaning. Typically, it's a moral or political one. Now, for those of you that have read Pilgrim's Progress, that is an allegory of a spiritual journey. That's an example of, of what's going on here. So he gives this, this, this imagery. And in it, the strong one that he's referring to is Satan. The strong one is Satan. The house is Satan's domain, which is the present world, which he seeks to hold secure under his power, his oppression, and his enslavement. That's his house. And his vessels are those victims that he has taken captive. So we're, we're putting actual real people to this, to this parable now. Now the stronger one, who's the stronger one? Alan, who's the stronger one? That a boy. Jesus. See, we got Sunday school going on and everything. The stronger one is Jesus, who has come from God, invaded Satan's stronghold, and bound him up. That's what this imagery is portraying here. This allegory prompts us to remember 
the prologue, back when John announced that one who is more powerful was to come. That one who is more powerful is Jesus, and he's more powerful not than just the, the local domains or kings or governmental rulers, but he's more powerful than Satan as well. Now, Mark didn't describe in full detail the temptation in the desert that Jesus went through back in like week two or three of us going through Mark, but clearly, given this imagery, Jesus must have bound the strong man for him to be able to plunder his house now. Remember, we talked about making room for the battle, and he bound the enemy in that temptation sequence in the desert, and now he's plundering his house. He's setting his people, his captives, his dominion free. This parable would prompt one who is schooled in Scripture in the Jewish tradition to remember the promise in Isaiah 49 that God himself will overcome the mighty one or the mighty enemy, the Satan. So these, these people would have remembered this through this imagery. Now with the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the battle is being, that's being waged is not just about, uh, against the petty tyrants and, and the kings and such of, of earth, but it's against the kingdom of Satan, which has enslaved all of humanity. And that's why Jesus is going around preaching the kingdom of God, delivering them from the demonic forces and seeing them set free, brought into another kingdom, a better kingdom, a kingdom of good news and forgiveness and hope. Then we see at the start of verse 28, Jesus says this one phrase. He says, truly I tell you. Other translations say, I tell you the truth. Which one is it? Truly I tell you or I tell you the truth? Yep, they both work, right? It's not a, a straight across translation. Either way, truly I tell you. This is the first of 13 uses of this phrase in Mark. And it's one of 50 in the entirety of the synoptic gospels that is used. Every single time this phrase is used, it comes off the lips of Jesus. This is a phrase that only he utters, that only he uses. And if there's something like that that he is saying that's only coming from the mouth of Jesus, it might be important, right? Maybe we should tune in to what comes next. This phrase in the original language, however, it's amen lego. Amen lego. And it's a transliteration of the Hebrew word meaning confirmed or verified. So he's saying like truly I tell you, is him pre-verifying what he's about to give you as being the word of God. In the Old Testament, this phrase would often come after a prophet would give a word and he would say, thus say the Lord, as a hey, this is from God. I, a prophet, am delivering you a word from God. This saith the Lord, or thus say the Lord, whatever translation you're reading out of. Here, Jesus uses this phrase in an unprecedented manner, and he starts off his sentence with saying, hey, truly I tell you. Or in the book of John, it says, truly, truly I tell you. He repeats that to make sure you are listening. What Jesus is doing here is he is stating under his authority that, hey, I'm giving you the word of God. This isn't just my opinion. This isn't some flippant educational session. This is literally the word of God. I am speaking on behalf of the Father. I'm speaking with authority. Listen up. This is important. That's what he's saying. So now when you're reading through and every time you see it says, truly, truly, I tell you, that is Jesus placing his stamp of authority and approval and verification at the very beginning of what he is about to share or teach. <clears throat> so when people hear him say that, truly, I tell you, you can bet that those 
sitting around that room, they would just be waiting with bated breath. It's like, hey, listen up, I'm about to drop something on you. Like, don't miss this. And so you'd feel the tension in the room rise because these people have come to see what Jesus is doing. And it's, it's so crowded that him and his disciples can't eat. And then his family's out there saying, man, we need to get hold of, our, of Jesus. Like, he's acting a fool. He's going crazy. We need, to, we need to rescue him from himself. He's just being destructive. Let's get him out of here, evacuate him home, get him into some rehab so that you know, he can go back about his way. And then you have these religious authorities come in, and they're saying, you're operating under the power of Satan. And Jesus shows them how just outlandish and illogical that accusation is. And then he says, truly, I tell you, listen up, this is the word of God. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. That's the very next phrase out of his mouth. And that's great news, and that's the central message to the kingdom of God, right? Like, forgiveness is needed. Forgiveness is offered through Jesus. You can be back in right relationship with the Creator, with God the Father. This whole message of the kingdom of God speaks of our need for forgiveness and the availability of it. And then he says, but, then he says, but, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, like all of you are doing right now, you won't be forgiven and you've committed an eternal sin or an everlasting sin. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I used to read this before having maybe some of the resources and access to the things that I could actually study, what this meant and what the scholars were saying about it, like when I was first getting into my word, this scripture ranked right alongside where God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart <laughs> as like, ah, I don't know what to do with those. That makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> and then I started studying more scripture and I read more of it. And I was like, okay, some of this is probably meant to make me feel uncomfortable. There's plenty of things that should make you feel uncomfortable and make you want to dive deeper when you go through scripture. But this one, like, man, there's, a, there's an unforgivable sin? How does that work with the message that Jesus is preaching? And if there is an unforgivable sin, like, Dear Lord, would you, would you reveal that to me so I can stay as far away? And would you protect me from that? And th th that's the kind of things that go on in our head, right? Like, man, there's something that we actually couldn't be forgiven for? And this verse, because of its common understanding in the church over decades, has often brought a lot of anxiety into people. The misunderstanding of what is happening here can cause us to just go off the rails and be thinking things and living under anxiety and, and fear that is just compounded upon by the enemy and not actually the heart of what God is trying to communicate to you, his children, in this. And so when I said this, this morning is twofold, we need to understand some stuff before we can see what we're going to apply. Because I believe that the very understanding of this helps us to further understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and how that is to operate in our lives. The narrator tells us that Jesus said this because the scribes or the religious authorities were accusing Jesus of having an unclean spirit. So he, this was in response to these religious leaders who knew better, who were actually the ones that would define the law, its application, and how it was carried out throughout this region, were accusing the very presence, the very Spirit of God, the operation of the Holy Spirit through Christ and His ministry. They're saying, no, that's, that's the devil. And that is why these words were uttered, that they said He was operating 
as an agent of Satan under the guise of this messianic message. They were accusing him of that. <clears throat> and like I said, such a harsh statement about an eternal or unforgivable sin has just gripped people within the church over the years. It's gripped them, and there's a few things we need to understand. First, if this is something that brings fear in you or misunderstanding, like, oh my gosh, I hope that's not, that's not me, we need to understand that what is condemned here is the spiteful denial of the activity of God's Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. To label the Holy Spirit as an unclean spirit and to deny that the Holy Spirit works directly in our fallen world through humans to subdue evil powers and see humans freed uh, from the institutions and bonds of Satan. Like Jesus makes a fierce assertion that if you are making those claims willingly and your heart is settled on that to be the truth, you're, that's, you're just going to be separate from God. Or as the King James put it, you're going to be put off to eternal damnation like for eternity. That's what is waiting for you if you have kept yourself, hardened your heart towards God to that extent. If your soul is settled that the forces of good, the Holy Spirit and the operation in Jesus' life, that you're settled, that that's just an agent of the enemy, like, what, what can he do for you? Like, your, your spirit is settled in that. And second, they don't allow for Jesus' use of hyperbole to underscore that rejecting or obstructing the work of the Holy Spirit is a terrible sin. Like, Hey, this is a horrible sin, is what he's saying. It's, it's unforgivable. Once you've went to this point, there, would, there seems to be no turning back for you. And people take these words literally and assume that Jesus's or, or God's forgiveness just doesn't go quite that far. That you can somehow, way operate outside of the spectrum or scope of the forgiveness of God. And I don't believe that's what this is trying to tell us. Theologian by the last name of McNeil, explains that serious or defiant sin was often spoken of as unpardonable in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers for Samuel and Isaiah use this verbiage. And he comments, if the Lord spoke as a Jew to Jews and used the type of expression current in his day and derived from the Old Testament, because remember, Jesus is well-versed in the Old Testament, and so were the people that he was speaking to, he meant and would be understood to mean no more than that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit by whose power he worked was a terrible sin, more terrible than blasphemy against any man. He's saying this is like next level that you are even stating these things about me. And the problem is that Christians frequently seize on the negative aspect of this saying. And we go right to the, oh my gosh, eternal sin. I'm, what? I, forever? I'm, I'm unforgivable? Like, and, you, and you start to get fearful about that. And we neglect the positive statement that comes right before it. What did it say right before that? All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. All of them. But what these guys are doing, this is like next level, Right? But all the sins and blasphemies of man will be forgiven of them. And since this passage has caused so much unnecessary anguish, it would be wise for us as Christians to stress the love and the grace and the patience of God that are never exhausted by our abundant sinfulness. That are never exhausted. John 6, 37 says, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The gospel proclaims that God forgives what may seem to be unforgivable. 
But we need to learn that rejecting Jesus out of ignorance is one thing, like you just don't know better. But attacking the power by which he works is something far more serious. There is a a far more serious level to that. If one is weak, they can be encouraged. If someone is ignorant, they can be informed. We can teach them. If one is willfully blind and rejects help, what can be done for them? If you are willfully blind and you are rejecting help, you are rejecting the very forgiveness that will save you, what can be done for them? It states one has cut themselves off from what might lead to repentance when this attitude or this settling of the soul in that direction happens. So these sworn enemies, these scribes, of Jesus, have shut their eyes to the truth as they're persecuting Jesus. They say that good is evil in order to turn others away from Jesus, to preserve their own authority, and to resist becoming disciples. See, I believe God is willing to forgive them. He's willing to forgive them, but they have to willfully shut themselves off from the sin, the thoughts, the way of life they are currently living, and seek God's forgiveness. This is not just a one-time thing that's happening here. It's an ongoing shunning of God's grace, his operation, and his good news happening here. Many scholars that write books about this and have commentaries, one of the common threads of every single one of them, I read five different ones as we were preparing for this, and every one of them makes this profound point. That if you're following Jesus and you're like, man, have I done that? Like, I said something bad once or, you know, I had this rebellious stage, but I'm doing good now. I've come back to God. You know, if you're worried about this, the fact that you even worry about it provides proof that you have not committed such a sin. Every single one had that common thread that, hey, the fact that you are concerned like about your standing with God shows that your heart is softened. It desires forgiveness. It desires reconciliation. It do- desires communion with God. And if you even have the, the whereabouts, be like, God, I, protect me from this. God, I don't, I don't want to go down that route. Like, you're good. This is about a heart condition. And those thoughts wouldn't even run, from your, run through your head if this was the state of your heart. Final point on this. Jesus affirms that this blasphemy is forgivable. In verse 20, he says, all, all are forgivable. He says, but this one, this is a little crazy. But when we look at Paul, it confirms that like he was a formal blasphemer. He considered Christians to be a cancer that was coming against all, Ju- like all Judaism and all its traditions. He was having them killed, stoned, prosecuted for following Jesus. But he had this encounter with God. He came to truth. He turned, and he ends up being one of the guys that writes a fair amount of the New Testament and helps establish many local churches as the church gets going in this world as we know it. And he once was like that, but his heart was softened. He turned, he encountered God, and he received forgiveness. So if you're out you know, evangelizing or developing relationships with people and somebody's just telling you things that you're like, man, that kind of sounds like what those scribes were saying about Jesus. Maybe I should stay away from them because haven't they committed the, un- uh, the unforgivable sin? Like, A, not your call to make. B, remember Paul and what he was saved from as he encountered God. And wouldn't it be an honor if God would use you to help bring along another Paul to serve him and see impact made in this world? That's, that's what I would say to that. So enough on that. There's plenty of reading if you want to continue to get into that. There's so much 
to be said about those few verses. But something that's interesting is like immediately after that, it just jumps back into Jesus' family. Did you catch that? It's like, hey, his family's coming to get him. Oh, and then these religious authorities come. Oh, and here's Jesus' family again. And you're like, ah, you feel like pinball. Like, what? what's going on? I can't keep up with it. Is this a soap opera or what? We're just cutting scenes to different things. And, and it can be hard to understand what we're seeing here. But this is a literary structure that Mark is using to draw some association. And we need to understand that. He's using what's called a bracketed structure. So he starts off with this interaction with the family, and he's like, oh yeah, then there's these religious people, these authorities that are accusing Jesus of being Satan, and then it comes back to the family. And we're going to see how the family gets settled here, but we need to understand that what Mark is doing in implementing this literary design or structure is he's saying, hey, this is all one and of the same. He's taking this familial interaction plugging in something that we're a little more willing to recognize as blasphemous and as pretty sinful, right, with these religious Pharisees, because we've already developed, like, thoughts of them from the previous chapters. And then he wraps it back around and shows you the extent of this familial interaction. And what he's saying is, hey, what his family's doing in trying to, like, remove him from his mission and interfere and thinking he's out of his mind, like, that's in the same camp as what these Pharisees are doing here. They are also interfering with his mission. So he's drawing a correlation between these two interactions that Jesus has. That maybe we would, if we just read it on our own, we'd separate them from one another, right? And like, oh, that's Jesus' family, that's the religious leaders. It's different. But the way he's structuring this, it's meant to associate them and help you think of them through the same lens. And here when Jesus was told that his family was looking for him, he responded with this rhetorical question. Who are my mother and brother and sisters? Who are they? And then with a sweeping of his eyes over those that are encircled around him as it was so crowded that he couldn't even eat, he said, these, these are my mother, my brothers, my sisters. This is my family. This is my family. And this statement would have certainly encompassed the 12, but it wouldn't have been exclusive to them. It would have encompassed all that were in the room that had received his good news, his kingdom proclamation, and were doing God's will, which was to receive that news at this point in time. Jesus' point here is that in the kingdom of God, spiritual ties are closer than blood or family ties. That's what he's saying here. He's elevating, he's enhancing the view of spiritual family, of this family of the kingdom of God and its eternal nature. Jesus' true family consists of all who obey the will of God, according to verse 35. Those with a positive response to Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God are considered his family, his spiritual family. Now, to this culture, these words would have been pretty shocking because so much of your identity, your wealth, your livelihood, your career, your social standing, your economic standing in this society was regulated by your last name by your blood affiliation. It was a big deal. Today, we can see how family names matter and they can play a big part in our, in our standing and how people view us. But here in these, the ancient Near East, like that was, that was everything. Your family, your, your, your social standing, your security, everything was wrapped into that. And now Jesus doesn't come in and just say, oh, that's all garbage. What he does is he says, yeah, family's important. And if you read the rest of the Bible, you see that family absolutely important. Honor your mother and father. The nuclear family is an important thing to him, but what he does is he enhances just this, this idea that we have of family, and he brings in this idea of spiritual family. It's an elevation of the good news 
of the spiritual family that is available and a part of us responding to the good news of the kingdom of God. So there's a lot happening here. And there's a lot of things that hopefully as we, we talk about this, you're like, gosh, I need to, I need to look into that more. And that's the point. We can only get so deep in one, ser- in one sermon with kids and everything else. But there's one thing that I really believe the heart of God wants to communicate to us this morning. And that's, there's clearly a theme of opposition that we see in the scripture, right? Like, so I want to talk about this pressure of opposition, the pressure that comes with the opposition Jesus is encountering. And, and I think we need to start here. Like, I think this is true for us. <laughs> this is clearly true for Jesus. But opposition often comes from where you least expect it. Have you guys ever like experienced that in your own life, like in your own relationships? It's like you can be cruising along, and we always have these kind of pockets of rela- or relational spheres where we're like, well, if any stuff's going to come, it's probably going to come from over there. So maybe I'll remi- remain a little guarded, or I'll keep an eye out over here, or, or whatever it is. But often the opposition just comes from out of nowhere. We're blindsided somewhere like, I never thought that that would happen. And Jesus here encounters opposition from the two places that on paper it should not have been coming from. It would make the least sense for the Messiah to meet opposition from his family, mother of which who was encountered by angels telling her who she was going to be having, and the religious leaders who had been studying and anticipating the coming of this Messiah for for the entirety of their lives. Like, if anybody is going to be excited about what Jesus is doing, wouldn't we think that it would be those two groups of people? That's that's what it would seem, right? Well, these people clearly know the Scriptures. They clearly see that the fulfillment of it is in Jesus, because we see it now, a couple thousand years later, so why wouldn't they, right? And his family, wouldn't they know what's going on? Wouldn't they have an intimate knowledge of what he's doing? But opposition comes from those who should be most aligned with Jesus, the religious authorities, and his biological family. And Jesus responds by enhancing the cultural and spiritual understanding of what a family is. That's his response here. It's not like, shame on you, let me educate you. You need to sign up for this two-year class so I can actually properly educate you in theology. That's not what he does with these people. He says, okay, I'm actually going to take this whole family concept and I'm going to enhance it. I'm going to take it to the next level and I'm going to share this good news about an eternal spiritual family that is available to all who would follow me. Familial ties that go beyond the temporal nature of our time here on earth and that aren't bound by just blood or tribe or nationality or ethnicity or fleshly privilege. It goes far beyond that. They're defined by our creator, by our father in heaven. And as we're called to follow him and we accept accept partnership in his mission and care for the things that he cares about, we're brought into his family. And his family is something that we just don't have human categories for. It supersedes our understanding. It supersedes like our frame of, of reference for what family is. It is so much more. <clears throat> Oftentimes people read this about this familiar interaction and we focus on the negative aspect of it. Like, oh, man, that's really sad that that happened with Jesus and his, his mom and siblings or whatever. But I believe this is intended to highlight the good news of what family, as instituted by Christ, is to be, what it's to stand for and provide for those who follow him. 
You see, in our culture where so many feel alone, feel cut off from family and relationships for various reasons, and especially right now, we should stress the positive aspects of this passage. There's a French novelist named André Guidet, and he states it this way. He bitterly expresses a forlorn, forlorn attitude when he talks about families in this passage, or not passage, in this sentence. He says, families, I hate you. Shut in your home, close doors, you jealous possessors of happiness. Families, I hate you. Just close doors in your fortified home, like just hoarding your happiness and your relationships to yourselves. Now this isn't scripture, but this is enlightening. Because I believe there is people living in every neighborhood of this city God has planted us in that are lonely that are isolated, that haven't experienced the good news of family for the majority of their life. And maybe right now you have somebody who has outlived their husband and kids or who has outlived the rest of their family and is lonely and isolated and just thirsting for something that would bring happiness and joy into their life. And family, the nuclear family, spiritual family is one of those things that Christ has put in place to bring that hope, that hospitality, that good news, those relationships into people's lives. To those who feel shut out, isolated, left out, lacking happiness and joy, Jesus' word here can be good news. He knits his followers into a family that transcends blood relations. It transcends kinship relationships or boundaries. Jesus' words, therefore, can become good news for everyone. It strengthens the nuclear family by helping them establish bonds beyond the walls of their family room and giving families a sense of purpose and ministry. And those who are familyless, like I explained, can find comfort in this word as well. The special needs child waiting for adoption, the homeless, mentally ill young adult, the teenage mother on her own at the age of 16, the aging adult who's outlived their children, the businesswoman trying to survive an emotional and ugly divorce, the struggling single mom who needs temporary foster care for her child. The goal is that these people would be able to be a part of a family because of the good news that Jesus expresses here when he enhances the meaning of family beyond just what you have biologically. And as he invites you into his kingdom, he invites you into his family. And we are to be an extension of that. An extension of that. You see, the goal of Christians in marriage or in the establishing of a family is not to make a house an island of intimacy, just your thing. And there's all this happiness and intimacy that happens on the island of your family in your home, shutting off others from the rest of the world. But the goal is to make a home for humankind, that your doors would be open, that you would invite others in, and that it would be a place where people can experience the goodness, the faithfulness, and the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, that is found in a right relationship with God. God the Father. And if we just focus inward on ours and preserving ours and taking care of ours and making sure that we're okay, because eventually I'll get okay enough that I can open my door and invite people in. Until somebody hurts me, then the doors get closed again for me to heal. If that's the attitude we have, well, you're never going to get there. Everything's never going to be okay. Everything's never going to be perfect to the point where you feel like you can actually go take some steps and sacrifice your comfort for others. That just is, that's, a, that's not going to happen. 
It's not going to happen. God has instituted the family so that there will be a place for his people to experience relationship, to be cared for, to be loved, to experience his hospitality and nurturing in the context of relationships. Worship team, you can come back up. You see, through families, the church is to extend the kind of accepting love that transforms a runaway slave like Onesimus into one who Paul claimed as his own child and as a brother to his former master. The kind of embracing love that transforms the runaway and throwaway children in our culture into our children. That we take a collective responsibility within our communities for one another, for those that Jesus has called a son or daughter, that they are family to us as well. And if the church takes seriously Jesus' idea of what the family is, one of its tasks is to create and nurture families that make a place for all those who want a relationship with God as Father and with one another. That's the responsibility of the family of God is to create a place where people can be nurtured in that and experience that. But this requires more than just sharing a row of seats or a table or six feet away seats on a Sunday morning. It requires more than just a Sunday morning interaction or a fellowship coffee after service. It requires doing life together, inviting people in, opening your doors, and making space for God to move. We are to allow people in our community to become our parents, our children, our siblings. We are to adopt one another, accepting responsibility for and committing to each other. The church is to take those who know the hurt of the world and bring them into the community of healing. To take those who know very well the hurt of the world and bring them into a place where they can receive healing in a community of acceptance. And Jesus' response to oppression from his natural family and the religious leaders and those that should know better and know him and about him the most is to enhance the meaning of family so that he can continue to lead his people to function in a place of hospitality and relational redemption in this world. The world we live in right now could use some relational redemption, amen? So how do we do that? By closing our doors and making sure we're safe and taken care of? Or by inviting people in, expressing the hospitality of our Creator, the love and compassion of the God who met us in our deep, dark places and saved us. That's the good news that this world so desperately needs and that family and spiritual family collectively gets to do in the community we live in. Father, I thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that you would help us just continue to dive deeper into what you're saying in your word. God, would you, would your Holy Spirit move in our families? God, would you, as we talked about a few weeks back, would you help make us available to live the way you've called us to live, to be the, the kind of family that you desire us to be, to care for your other sons and daughters and, and those that maybe are isolated and lonely and don't get to experience biological family in a positive sense, God, would you draw them into community? Would you help us to be open, compassionate, and caring for your kids as you have been for us? God, we love you, we praise you, and we pray that you would make this a reality not just in our church, but in your church abroad, that the church of Jesus Christ would be known for extending the love of God, sacrificing our comfort 
and our resources to see your kingdom come and be expressed in our daily lives. So we love you and we praise you. Amen. If you're able, I'd love it if you join and sing with us in this final song.